Welcome, everyone, to episode 76 of Ohio Unsolved. I'm your host, Matthew, and in today's episode, we're going to hear about two deaths with lots of mystery around them. Two girls found dead in two different hotels with so many unanswered questions. So let's just get right into the episode. Everyone sit back, make sure to lock your doors and windows, and get ready for Ohio Unsolved. Our first story is about the death of Alyssa Lamb. On February 19, 2013, the body of Canadian tourist Alyssa Lamb was recovered from a large cistern atop the Stay on Main Hotel in downtown Los Angeles, where she had been a guest. She was last seen alive on January 31st and was reported missing by her parents on February 1st. Her body was discovered by a hotel maintenance worker investigating complaints of flooding and low water pressure. Interest in Lamb's disappearance increased on February 13th when the Los Angeles Police Department released security camera footage of her behaving erratically in a hotel elevator on the day that she was last seen alive. The video went viral. While an autopsy performed on February 21st was inconclusive in determining the manner of Lamb's death, the L.A. County Coroner's Office subsequently ruled the death an accident, with bipolar disorder being a significant, significant contributing factor. Guests at the Stay on Main sued the hotel over the incident, and Lamb's parents filed a separate suit later that year. The latter was dismissed in 2015. Some of the internet interest noted what were considered to be unusual similarities between Lamb's death and the 2002 horror film Dark Water. The case has since been referenced in international popular culture and been the subject of several creative works. Lamb, the daughter of immigrants from Hong Kong, was a student at the University of British Columbia, although she was not registered at the beginning of 2013. In mid-2010, Alyssa began a blog named Etherfields on Blogspot. Over the next two years, she would post pictures of models and fashionable clothing and accounts of her life, particularly her struggle with mental illness. In a January 2012 blog post, Lamb lamented that a relapse at the start of the current school term had forced her to drop several classes leaving her feeling so utterly directionless and lost. She titled her post, 
you're always haunted by the idea you're wasting your life. After a quotation from novelist Chuck Palahniuk, I'm sure I butchered that, she used that quote as an epigraph for her blog. Lamb worried that her transcript would look suspicious with so many withdrawals and that it would result in her being unable to continue her studies and attend graduate school. A little over two years after Lamb had started blogging, she announced that she would be abandoning her blog for another that she had started on Tumblr. Its content mostly consisted of fashion photos, quotes, and a few posts in Lamb's own words. The same Palinuit quotation was used as an epigraph. Lamb had been diagnosed with bipolar disorder and depression. She had been prescribed several medications for her mental health issues. According to her family, who reportedly kept her mental illness private, Lamb had no history of suicidal ideations or attempts, although one report claimed that she had previously gone missing for a brief period. Lamb had a history of not taking her bipolar medications, and as a result, on several occasions, suffered hallucinations that would cause her to hide under her bed for refuge. She was hospitalized at least once for one of these episodes. For her trip to California, she traveled alone on Amtrak and inner-city buses. She visited the San Diego Zoo and posted photos taken there on social media. On January 26th, she arrived in Los Angeles. After two days, she checked into the Cecil Hotel near downtown Skid Row. Lamb was initially assigned a shared room on the hotel's fifth floor. However, her roommates complained about what the hotel lawyers would later describe as certain odd behavior, and Lamb was moved to a room of her own after two days. According to Amy Price, the manager of the Cecil Hotel and Stay on Main at the time of Lamb's disappearance, Lamb was leaving notes for her roommates that said, go home and go away, and would lock the door to the room and require a password for entry. A few days before her disappearance, Lamb attempted, attended a live taping of Conan in Burbank, but she was escorted off the premises by security due to disruptive behavior. Lamb contacted her parents in British Columbia daily while traveling, up until the day that she disappeared. On January 31, 2013, the day that she was scheduled to check out of the Cecil and leave for Santa Cruz, her parents, parents did not hear from her and called the Los Angeles Police Department. Her family flew to L.A. to help with the search. Hotel staff who saw Lamb that day said that she was alone. Outside the hotel, Katie Orphan, manager of the last bookstore, was the only person who recalled seeing her that day. She was outgoing, very lively and very friendly, she said, while getting gifts to take home to her family, Orphan told CNN. She was talking about what book she was getting and whether or not she would be getting too heavy for her to carry around as she traveled. The police searched the hotel to the extent that they legally could. They searched Lamb's room and they had dogs go through the building, including the rooftop, but the dogs were unsuccessful in detecting her scent. But we didn't search every room, Sergeant Rudy Lopez said. We could only do that if we had probable cause to believe a crime had been committed. On February 6th, a week after Lamb had last been seen, the LAPD decided more help was needed. 
Flyers with her image were posted in the neighborhood and online. It brought the case to the public's attention through the media. On February 13th, after another week with no sign of her, the LAPD released a video of the last known sighting of her taken in one of the Cecil's elevators by a video surveillance camera on January 31st. In approximately two and a half minutes of footage, Lamb alone makes unusual moves and gestures. She appears to press every button on the elevator panel, peers into the hallway, and then leaves the elevator at one point while its doors remain open. When the doors fail to close after she returns, she leaves. The doors then close later. The video drew worldwide interest in the case due to Lamb's strange behavior, and it has been extensively analyzed and discussed. It was reposted widely, including the Chinese video sharing site Yoku, where it got 3 million views and 40,000 comments in its first 10 days. Many of the commenters found it very unsettling to watch. Several theories emerged to explain her actions. One was that Lam was trying to get the elevator car to move in order to escape from someone who was pursuing her. Others suggested that she might be under the influence of ecstasy or some other party drug, but none were detected in her body. When her bipolar disorder became known, the theory that she was having a psychotic episode also emerged. Other viewers argued that the video had been tampered with before being made public. Besides the obscuring of the timestamp, they claimed parts had been slowed down and nearly a minute of footage had been removed. This could have been done to protect the identity of someone who otherwise would be in the video, either related or not to the disappearance. During the search for Lamb, guests at the hotel began complaining about low water pressure. Some later claimed their water was colored black and it had an unusual taste. On the morning of February 19th, Santiago Lopez, a hotel maintenance worker, found Lamb's body in one of the four 1,000-gallon tanks located on the roof, providing water to guest rooms, a kitchen, and a coffee shop. Through the open hatch, he saw Lamb lying face up in the water. The tank was drained and cut open since its maintenance hatch was too small to accommodate equipment needed to remove her body. On February 21st, the Los Angeles coroner's office issued a finding of accidental drowning with bipolar disorder as a significant factor. The full coroner's report, released in June, stated that Lamb's body had been found naked, clothing similar to what she was wearing in the elevator video was floating in the water, coated with a sand-like substance. Her watch and room key were also found with her. Lamb's body was moderately decomposed and bloated. It was mostly greenish, with some marbling evident on the abdomen and skin separation evident. There was no evidence of physical trauma, sexual assault, or suicide. Toxicology tests showed traces of cons consistent with prescription medication found among her belongings, plus non-prescription drugs such as Sinutab and Ibuprofen. A very small quantity of alcohol was present, but no other recreational drugs. 
Investigators and experts have, however, noted that the concentration of her prescription drugs in her system indicating that she was indicated that she was under medicating or had stopped taking her medications recently. The investigation had determined how Lamb died, but did not initially offer an explanation as to how she got into the tank in the first place. Doors and stairs that access the hotel's roof are locked, with only staff having the passcodes and keys, and any attempt to force them would supposedly have triggered an alarm. The hotel's fire escape could have allowed her to bypass those security measures. Her scent trail was lost near a window that connected to it. A video posted to the internet after Lamb's death showed that the hotel's roof was easily accessible via the fire escape and that two of the lids of the water tanks were open. Apart from the question of how she got on the roof, others asked if she could have gotten into the tank by herself. All four tanks were four by eight foot cylinders propped up on concrete blocks. There was no fixed access to them and hotel workers had to use a ladder to look at the water. They were protected by heavy lids that would be difficult to replace from within. The hotel employee who found the body said that the lid was open at the time, removing the issue of how she could have closed the lid from inside. Police dogs that searched through the hotel for Lamb, even on the roof shortly after her disappearance, was noted, did not find any trace of her. Proponents of the theory that the elevator video shows that she was under the influence of illicit drugs are not dissuaded by their absence from the toxicology screen, suggesting that they might have broken down during the period of time her body decomposed in the tank, or that she might have taken rare cocktails of such drugs that a normal screen would not detect. The very low level of her prescription drugs in her system and the number of pills left in her prescription bottle suggested that she was under-medicating or had recently stopped taking her medication for bipolar disorder, which might have led to a psychotic episode. The autopsy report and its conclusions were also questioned based on the incomplete information. For instance, it does not say what the results of the rape kit and fingernail kit were or even if they were processed. It also records pullings of blood in Lamb's anal area, which some observers suggested was a sign of sexual abuse. One pathologist noted that it could have resulted from bloating in the course of the body's decomposition, and her rectum was also prolapsed. The coroner's pathologist were ambivalent about their conclusion that Lamb's death was accidental. Since her death, her Tumblr, Tumblr blog was updated presumably through Tumblr's queue option that allows posts to automatically publish themselves when the user is away. Her phone was not found either with her body or in her hotel room. Whether the continued updates to her blog were facilitated by the theft of her phone, the work of a hacker, or through the queue is not known. Nor is it known whether the updates are related to her death. In September of 2013, Lamb's parents filed a wrongful death suit, claiming the hotel failed to inspect and seek out hazards in the hotel that presented an unreasonable risk of danger to Lamb and other hotel guests, and seeking unspecified damages and burial costs. 
the hotel argued, it, it could not have reasonably foreseen that Lamb might have entered the water tanks, and since it remained unknown how Lamb got to the water tank, no liability could be assigned for failing to prevent it. In 2015, the lawsuit was dismissed. Was she being pursued by someone who ended up killing her and dumping her body in the water tank? Or was it all by her own hands due to an episode from her bipolar disorder? Myself, I'm leaning more towards foul play, but there's no way that she put herself in the tank by herself. But unfortunately, we may never know the truth. Now, our next story is very similar. It's about the mysterious death of Kanika Jenkins. Kanika Jenkins was a 19-year-old student from Chicago, Illinois, who was found dead on September 9, 2017, inside of a latched freezer at the Crown Plaza Chicago O'Hare Hotel in Rosemont, Illinois, after attending a party there the prior day. The medical examiner's report found Jenkins' death to be accidental. Alcohol was found in her system, were thought to have hastened the effects of hypothermia sustained by Jenkins remaining inside of the freezer. While the Rosemont Police Department did not suspect foul, foul play, they stated that their investigation was incomplete. Jenkins' family and friends criticized the initial police response, and a lawsuit was subsequently filed against the hotel and others. Kanika Jenkins was with friends at a party that took place in room 926 of the Crown Plaza Hotel in Rosemont, a suburb of Chicago. The party started at 11.30 p.m. on Friday, September 8, 2017. An acquaintance who arrived at the party noticed that Kanika appeared to be swaying back and forth as she embraced him in a hug. Several witnesses reported seeing her drink cognac but did not see her partake of any marijuana or other drugs. Another witness reported that Kanika wasn't acting like her usual self, noting that she would dance a little, but later appeared to be sad and went to go sit down. She was briefly seen with others walking through one of the halls in the hotel. Camera footage later surfaced of Jenkins staggering near the front desk at 3.20 a.m. About one hour later, Kanika's friends con contacted her mother, Teresa Martin, who arrived at the hotel around 5.30 a.m. to assist in the search. She proceeded to knock on many guest doors from the top floor to the bottom until a hotel employee called 911 to complain. Hotel management stated that they could not provide access to video footage from the night before until someone had reported her missing to the police who officially reported her missing to hotel management at 1.15 p.m. Saturday. Family members later characterized the initial police response as lacking in urgency. A first check of camera footage that focused on entrances and exits turned up nothing. But at 10 p.m., police spotted footage of Jenkins stumbling through the hotel. Her whereabouts remained unknown until she was found in the hotel's freezer and pronounced dead at 12.48 a.m. Sunday. 
She was found lying face down on her side with one shoe off. There was no sign of trauma other than a small cut on her foot. The temperatures inside the freezer was found to be 34 degrees Fahrenheit or 1 degree Celsius, approximately two hours after the doors had been left open. The freezer, which was on and working, was described as a walk-in freezer within a walk-in cooler and was part of an unused kitchen. Lights were apparently turned off in both chambers when she entered them. Questions remained as to why the freezer was turned on, although it was reportedly being leased out to a restaurant using space in the hotel. Motion-detecting security cameras showed Jenkins staggering, apparently intoxicated, through the hotel's hallways, eventually arriving at the kitchen, where she rounded a corner towards the freezer. They claimed the freezer door itself was out of the camera's sight, but later it was confirmed that a working camera faced the freezer door. On October 6, 2017, the Cook County Medical Examiner's Office ruled Jenkins' death an accident. The autopsy report found no illegal drugs in her system, but her blood alcohol level was found to be 0.112. Traces of, and I'm going to butcher this, topa... Topiramate, T-O-P-I-R-A-M-A-T-E. A drug used to treat epilepsy and migraine headaches were also found in her system, although she was never prescribed this medication. The medication taken together with alcohol can enhance the effects of both and hasten the onset of hypothermia, the presence of which was confirmed by lesions found on her stomach. Brain swelling was also observed but this condition was not associated with the cause of death. The Rosemont Police Department issued a statement the same day, saying that while no foul play was suspected, their investigation had not yet been completed. Jenkins' friends' stories remained inconsistent as to exactly what had happened after the party. After she went missing, one friend texted about how Jenkins was drunk and missing. The reply came back, find Kanika, and I can't believe y'all lost her. They told Martin that Kanika had gone downstairs with some people, but they left her alone to go and retrieve a cell phone from one of the hotel rooms. In 2018, the family's attorney, Jeffrey Feiger, filed a $50 million lawsuit against the hotel and others. He displayed photos of a freezer door showing that it had a lock button from the outside and suggested someone may have inadvertently locked a freezer door. This was contradicted by the security camera, which recorded no other footage since August 30th, nor any after Jenkins' footage. The photo seemed to not be of the actual freezer door, which latched shut but apparently had no lock. A white circular handle on the inside which would have enabled a person to exit on their own, appeared to be in good working order. The attorney asserted that the hotel had the means to lock off the kitchen area as it had a pair of plywood doors with a padlock.
Here's another one. Was she the victim of foul play? Or did she succumb to her drunkenness and stumble into the wrong place and just get trapped? Another mystery that we may never know the truth. But whatever the truth is, these were both tragic and I believe avoidable deaths had someone in the hotels noticed something was wrong and did something about it. Our final story comes from yourghoststories.com and it's called The House on 25th Street. My name is Sam. I'm 28 years old and I live in a beautiful town called Barbersville, West Virginia. It is a small place near Huntington, West Virginia. Prior to the age of three, my parents and I moved around quite a bit. Finally, my father's military path led him to be stationed in Oklahoma, and my mother and I moved to Huntington to be around her parents and siblings. We moved into a big house that her parents owned. The house was on the outskirts of the roughest part of town. The area was rough with crime and houses were torn down. It was yellow, two stories tall, and about 80 years old. And if you went down steps beside the house, you would find a large backyard covered in trees. With the house behind you, the yard was a peaceful escape within an obviously cruel setting. Cherry trees, apple trees, a walnut tree, and a few maple and oak trees provided a shady canopy for the downward slope yard. The back fence was lined with grapevines and a large weeping willow tree. However, a turn to the rear revealed an ominous and threatening house. It was taller from the rear because of the basement, which was visible from the side. The basement was accessed by opening a large square door that always reminded me of a barn door. The basement was terrifying, especially to a small child. The floor was dirt, and there was no working light fixtures. If you stepped up to the right side of the basement, there was a room typically sealed. My mom let me in there a few times, and it revealed a workbench area that appeared trapped in time. Old, turn-of-the-century tools were lying scattered, covered in decades of dust and webs. The basement also housed the furnace and yard tools. Therefore, as a child, the only reason I had to go in there was for yard tools and to see what people were up to when they were working on the house. At any rate, I avoided this dark place, not only because I found it creepy visually, but because there was a suffocating darkness that I felt even from just looking at the padlocked basement door from the outside. Anyway, on to the house's interior living space. The entrance to the house was covered by a long, covered porch. Part of the house extended over the roof of the porch. When you walked into the front door, the first thing that you would see was a foyer with brown carpeted steps directly in front of you. To your left, a dining room. To your right, a large living room. It was like one big open area with a set of stairs stuck in the middle of it. If you went to the right of the stairs by the living room, you would eventually get to a door that led to two more options. If you went right, you would find a long room containing a washer and a dryer, grandma's plants, and a long table my grandfather used for tools. At the end of this hall was the door to the steps which led down to the backyard. If you went left from the previous door, you would find the kitchen, 
we like to eat most of our normal meals in the kitchen. If you continued through the kitchen, you would be led back out a door into the dining room. If you continued through the dining room, you would end up at the front door. So essentially, the house was a big circle. I used to ride my tricycle through the place. The stairwell was particularly creepy, just because of its darkness and the way it was situated. When you reached the top of the stairs, you were at a flat spot, a landing area, and you had to go up three more stairs to your right to get to the bathroom, bedrooms, and spare space. Once upstairs, you could go left into the bathroom or right down a hallway. The hallway was essentially a big open area with white railings surrounding the stairs opening, so one could lean over the banister and see the front door. If you were walking from the bathroom, a bedroom would be on your left. If you continued straight, you would see a storage area. If you went through a door on the right at the end of the hall, you would reach the master bedroom. Yes, the upstairs makes a circle as well. If you continued through the master bedroom, you would reach the door to another bedroom. From this room, you could look out into the backyard pretty easily. You could also go straight into the bathroom and back into the hallway from here. The house was brown and cream in color. There was an abundance of brown carpet, brown paneling, and some white and cream walls which were decorated with religious paintings, crosses, paintings of elder family members, and lots of photos. I apologize for the lengthy description of the home, but I feel it is necessary to paint the environment. Right after we moved into the house, my grandfather passed away. I remember the funeral, but not a lot was substantial directly afterwards. My bedroom was the one sandwiched between the bathroom and the master bedroom, so I used to go upstairs into the bathroom, then into my bedroom. It was good because I could look at the foot of the bed into my mom's bedroom. My grandma was staying in the bedroom in the hallway overlooking the stairs. I stayed in this bedroom for approximately two years. Every night in this room, I would feel kind of uneasy, but attribute it to being a child. I had some pretty scary dreams and some sleep paralysis, but nothing too violent. My mom said that I used to carry on conversations in my sleep a lot, but I still do that to this day. I used to hear my grandma scream out in the middle of the night, Get out of here! You have no business here! I used to giggle because my grandma was kind of fussy and didn't really like my mom's dog, so I used to always figure that it was just the dog bugging her. When I turned five or so, my grandma became quite ill. She had a stroke and was no longer as mobile. So as we turned the dining room downstairs into her room so that she could have access to the house, I ended up moving into her room because I liked it more. I moved most of my stuff in there, but some of the things remained. One of those things was a big rocking chair that creaked like crazy if you sat in it. The floor was bare wood and would also creak a lot when you walked across it. I was left less comfortable emotionally in this room. When I would look out of my door at night, I could see into the dark hallway and the railing of the stairs. Within a few days, I began having terrible nightmares about being torn apart and suffocated by something that I couldn't see. Then it happened. I was lying in bed 
trying to go to sleep one night, but it was so hot that this was difficult. The only thing I could hear was the oscillating fan at the foot of my bed. Then I heard the stairs creaking, as if someone was coming up. As I looked out of my room, I struggled to see into the dark hallway. Then I saw it. A tall, dark figure slowly coming up the stairs. It stopped when I could see it from the waist up. It appeared to be turned, looking at me, and just stayed there for a long time. Eventually, it moved and started to continue up the stairs. As hot as it was, I covered my head and did not move a muscle. I heard the floorboards creak as something entered my room. The steps approached the side of my bed, and I could feel it standing there. I stayed covered for probably an hour before falling asleep. I don't remember what I dreamt, but as I awoke, I experienced sleep paralysis. However, it was much different than before. I felt as if I was being squeezed by something terribly cold. I could hear a pulsating hum, much like electricity, that grew louder and louder until I finally managed to move and sit up. This was the first of many, many nights. I almost never slept with my head above covers from that point forward. Every time I would do this, I would scream for my mom and she would comfort me. She didn't make any guesses as to what it was or mention whether or not she thought that I was telling the truth. One night, I woke up because I heard someone walk down the hallway. I managed to whimper, Mom? And then I heard my dog growling and barking. He never did this. She never did this. She was a very calm dog. My mom came out into the hallway and turned the light on. She was telling Shaggy to stop, and I came out to see what she was doing. She was standing there barking at the storage room at the end of the hall. She did this until my mom took her into her room. We went back to bed, and I slept comfortably. On the worst night that I can remember, I woke up to a loud storm. I was six or seven at the time. Lightning was filling my room, even with a lamp on the side table. Suddenly, the power went out, which meant my light went out as well. I could hear the fan slowing down, and the room became so very quiet. I could hear the intense rain beating the roof, and the lightning was the only light available. It was again very hot. I remember sweating from the heat and the fear. Then I heard a footstep creak on my floor. I slowly covered my head, as hot as it was. I tried to not make a sound. The footsteps slowly approached my bedside. Then suddenly, I felt like I got hit with cold energy. I felt like I was being torn out by electricity. I was shaking and I couldn't scream. I was uncovered at this point and could hear the loudest scream imaginable. It sounded like it was inside of my ears. I finally managed to call out, Mom! At this point, I felt myself freed and I fell to the floor. The power came on, the light at my table came on, and the fan began spinning again. My ears were ringing and my body was burning. At this time, loud footsteps thumped through the hallway and a door slammed shut. The door to the back bedroom that connected with the bathroom. My mom must have woke up when she heard the door slam and came to find me in the floor. 
She asked me if I was okay and picked me up and put me into bed. She looked over me and found large handprint bruises on each of my arms. Things seemed to be kind of quiet for a couple of weeks, so I became somewhat comfortable around the house. One night, I was riding around the house on my tricycle, as I like to do. I stopped at the foot of the stairs, suddenly, and was compelled to look up. It was so dark, I couldn't tell if I was looking at anything. Then behind me, I heard a loud thump on the front door. I was startled, and I didn't know whether to run or not. Then I heard loud scratching coming from the top of the door. I split like lightning and ran to my grandma and mom. They looked outside, and nothing was there. This scratching became a regular occurrence, as did thumping sounds coming from the basement. We could often hear them while eating or watching TV. Sometimes the toilet upstairs would flush on its own, and we would all be downstairs. Sometimes at night, I would hear something like someone sitting in the rocking chair in my room. It would creak loudly with any movement. My grandma needed my help frequently, so I was used to her calling my name. But there were frequent times that I would hear her call my name, and when I would find her, she had never said anything. The activity seemed to die down a bit when my dad would be visiting on leave, but he was a very quick-tempered man. I remember one time he was so mad he threw me down in the hallway upstairs. I ran to my room and found a mirror on my dresser to be broken. That could be coincidence from vibrations, but it is interesting. My last summer in that house, before my parents' divorce, seemed a bit more calm. The bad dreams, the creaking floor, the scratching and thumping, all of it had died down. It seemed to follow the decline of my grandma's health, at least I thought it did. I was told many years later as a teenager that one of the times my uncles came over to fix a furnace, they noticed a spot in the basement that appeared to be damp. They dug it up to see if there was any kind of underground water leak. What they found? I am so glad that I didn't know about it. They found bones in the floor of the basement. My mom said that they were in a small hole about 20 inches wide, but a few feet deep. I remember police being in the backyard once as a kid, but my grandma stayed with me in the house and wouldn't let me see. This house had belonged to my grandparents for probably 30 to 35 years, and my mom and her sisters did some growing up there, mostly early late teens. My mom told me that she had always been told growing up that the man who lived there prior to her parents had killed himself in the house which always creeped her out. She also said that his wife had been declared missing for a long time before he killed himself, but she was never found. One of my aunts that lived there talked to me one day, and out of the blue she mentioned the black man. I asked her, was there a black guy in the house? She replied that he was a tall, dark shadow that would come into her room and hover over her. Apparently, they all knew about and experienced this entity. The experiences were so terrifying to me that I get teary-eyed just talking about them. After my parents divorced, we moved out of the house. I never experienced nights like that again. Thank God.
Well, that is going to do it for today's episode. I hope that everyone enjoyed the stories. If you did, could you please rate and review on Spotify and Apple Podcasts? A five-star rating really helps others to find us. Don't forget to join us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram, and subscribe on YouTube. And thank you in advance for subscribing on YouTube and helping to eventually reach my goal of 500 subscribers. Remember, once I hit 500 subscribers on YouTube, I'm going to release a YouTube-exclusive bonus episode and also a giveaway. If you do enjoy the show, please consider helping to support us by joining on Patreon with monthly bonus episodes being available from the $5 tier. Once again, thank you all for listening, and make sure to keep your doors and windows locked, and stay ready for Ohio Unsolved.